Matt, we have arrived finally at the much-hyped question-and-answer episode of The Bog House. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. We've been talking about this for quite a few episodes now. Too many episodes. Yeah. um, (laughs) Don't believe the hype. Uh, Actually, that's not true. I think we've had some good questions come in. I think that uh, it'll be a fun one yeah. that we'll run through. And after this episode, we're going to take a short hiatus, a little break, because we have a bunch of conferences to attend in June. So both Matt and I will be spending a lot of time out of town, mostly for our respective professional interests, our non amateur archaeology interests. Yeah, mostly. You've got one that is actually in line with uh, archaeology a little bit. That's right. I'll also be going to one archaeology camp in historic Eastfield in upstate New York, so I'm really looking forward to that. But we will definitely be back in July with an update on all our Boghouse happenings, unless we get super inspired at the National Puppetry Conference (laughs) at the Eugene O'Neill Theatre Centre, which will be at together and we have all our recording equipment on hand so who knows true. maybe we'll have a story to tell we might of course in between now and the next episode uh definitely follow us on instagram and twitter and facebook whatever your preferred social media is um not snapchat because we will be posting photos of the artifacts that we talked about in the last episode as we clean and assemble them we've found some really cool stuff yeah and we've been putting them all together and sort of taping them in place so you can see the shape of many of the artifacts. And uh, it's about time to put photos of those online for our select elite listeners who follow us on the social medias. So elite. So elite. <laughs> elite hacksaws. Yes. But in this week's news, a couple of days ago, Matt and I went down to the Cherry Street Pier, which is about a 10-minute walk from our house on the Delaware River for a neighborhood informational meeting hosted by the Delaware River Waterfront Corporation and AECOM, which you will remember as the archaeology company that employs Debbie Miller, who we interviewed in episode 14, and also Doug Mooney, who we mentioned a little while ago because he's the head of the Philadelphia Archaeological Forum. And we went on a little walk with him and Jed Levin from the National Park Service and talked with them about the area. Right. There's a a big New York developer who's uh, super important, and you might actually have heard of them. You've definitely heard of buildings yeah, I, they've made. I had, I had heard of them, but anyway, <laughs> we digress. <laughs> yeah, they're about to start developing a lot about a block away from the Hannah Callow Hill stage at the corner of Callow Hill Street and Delaware Avenue. Um, this is across the road from Dave & Buster's, which... Not coincidentally, the developer has also purchased. Yeah. If Um, you know Philadelphia, you'll know where Dave & Buster's is. It's right there. (laughs) (laughs) Since the company has a lot of resources and actually has some family connections to and interest in archaeology, they've committed to doing some worthwhile exploration and excavation on this site, which is known as a number of names, but uh, we're just going to call it the West Shipyard. So this lot is... Now about 100 feet inland because of Delaware Avenue, sometimes known as Columbus Boulevard, but I like to call it Delaware Avenue because fuck Christopher Columbus. (laughs) Um, But Delaware Avenue is all fill. So what is now on Delaware Avenue used to just be the Delaware River. And the site used to be right on the Delaware River waterfront. 
Right now, there is a PPA, the Philadelphia Parking Authority for non-locals, a PPA parking lot, which is there. And underneath that parking lot currently exist perhaps the only surviving examples of original wooden slipways from an early 19th century American shipyard on the east coast of the United States of America, which quite possibly makes it the oldest surviving slipways in the United States. Yeah, the West Shipyard predates the organization of Pennsylvania as a colony, actually. William Penn sent this dude... I don't know his first name off the top of my head, but his last name was West. Uh, he came over <laughs> really? here. Really? Oh, I thought the West referred to the like cardinal direction West. Is it West? No, no. Oh, West I'm, is his name. Oh, I learned something new today. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, he was sent over here with some shipbuilders, probably from the, uh, I'm going to pronounce it, the, the Philly way, the Southwark area of London. <laughs> and started building ships predating the establishment of philadelphia or pennsylvania right so in the 1600s mm-hmm. we're talking about this was a shipyard although they think that the wooden slipways that are there were constructed probably in the early 1800s because wooden shipways can't last that long i mean <laughs> right right it was obviously heavily in use Shipbuilding was a big deal we know this because the site was explored a bit in 1987 the lot was designated historical by the Philadelphia Historical Commission, and this was something that inspired them to dig and check out what was there back in 1987. After they wrapped up that work, it really just existed as a parking lot until they opened it up again back in 2012. Right, so each time they did these uh, sort of explorations, they would dig a trench and they would find a bunch of stuff, but they didn't have the budget to do a full-on excavation, right? So they would just kind of cover it back up and leave it for a future day when someone would have the money and the interest and the time to look at it properly. Listener, that day has arrived. Amazing. (laughs) We have moved into this neighborhood and become interested in archaeology, and now there is a massive, genuine archaeological dig happening less than a block from our house. Amazing. One of the things that they are doing this exploration to inform is the design of the eventual building that's going to go on that lot. They're going to try as best they can to design the building to minimize the amount of damage and loss to the archaeological features and information under that lot. So we actually don't know what the shape of the building that will eventually be put there will be, but it'll probably be luxury apartments of some kind because that's what everything in this neighborhood is turning out to be. (laughs) Of course, first floor commercial and then residential above it, uh, potentially a 200 foot tall building. Right. And we will witness this uh, historic event where they destroy. (laughs) Well, listen, I will say most of the development that's been happening around here, they have been paying fucking zero attention to the archaeology. We've been sort of sweeping in and trying to pay attention to the development sites. But most developers really couldn't give a shit. I think this is actually kind of as close to ideal as we're going to get in the 21st century in Philadelphia. Yeah. When it comes to documenting and some level of preservation. Sure. Um, And Doug Mooney is involved, which gives me a lot of hope because that guy knows what he's talking about and is a real advocate for 
preserving archaeology. Yeah, Doug and his crew have all worked on Philadelphia archaeological sites for for decades at right. this point. And I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that we'll be able to interview Doug about this dig at some point during the summer. He's given his sort of verbal say-so, so we'll try to line that up and give you the skinny when we get it. But for now, on with the questions. Take a seat. You're in the bug house. Hello, this is Jeremy Spalt, your internet friend from Baltimore. My question is, have you been able to date the physical structure of the theater? Your Facebook mentions that one of your shared walls probably has bricks from Abraham Carpenter's time, but do you know about the rest of your house? Thanks, and I'm really enjoying the podcast. I'm so glad you asked this question. <laughs> this, is <laughs> this is something I've weirdly obsessed about. Yeah, Matt is like super obsessed with like how the building's shape has changed over the last 250 years plus. What I will say is that originally, I think as we mentioned, Abraham Carpenter built definitely one, probably two buildings on the lot. Uh, we have records of these from the early 1800s. So in the front of the lot, there was a building that was 16 feet wide, took up the width of the lot, and 30 feet deep. So each floor was, what's that, 480 square feet? It's like a modest-sized row home It was, it was three and a half stories, and modest is right. It was smaller than the usual row home. Right. It would have had like a shop or a workshop on the first floor and then a bedroom for the person who worked in the shop above it then behind that building we have what i called the shitty tenement building which was 11 and a half feet wide so really skinny (laughs) and 28 feet deep and it was divided into two two two-storied like one up one down apartments so this was what was there in 1761 During our construction, we basically had to destroy everything that was in place aside from the two side walls of the building. We wanted to preserve what we could, but there was just so much damage. It wasn't structurally sound to continue using the original beams. Yes. As Christine, our engineering friend, said, everything in there was jacked up. And uh, and so the original theater, which, by the way, is a really recent thing. It was only Mr. Grasso that turned it into a theater in the last 10 years max or mm-hmm. so. The theater had to be completely taken out, essentially, and we started from scratch. But Matt has done this amazing work in mapping out how the building changed over the years and mapping out like the materials that we were dismantling. Right. We not only dismantled the original timber from the building, which showed us that the staircase that we now walk up along the right-hand side of the building was not the original staircase. There had been an alleyway on the side of the building so that you could get back to that two-story tenement in the back. We could see that there was originally a very, very narrow staircase along the left-hand side of the building that you got through in the center of the first floor. Uh, We also uncovered a basement with arches along the side of the building, which were a kind of 
storage. That's just how they stored things in the basement back in the, the 1700s. We didn't fully excavate the basement because we aren't made of money. Um, <laughs> or muscles. Or muscles. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so while we understand that the kitchen may have originally been in the basement, we can't confirm that for sure. Yeah. Um, we only know about that through the records of the Philadelphia contribution ship, that uh, insurance company that existed back then, continues to exist today, and has great records digitized, including uh, essentially a virtual walkthrough of the entire building back in the 1800s. I don't know that we have one from the 1700s. No, but it was like early 1800s, and it sounds like I don't oh, think... Oh, it was nothing how the building changed, was. Yeah. Right. They wouldn't have built a building and then renovated it in the next 30 years. Right. So by 1905... This is when the fabric of the building really began to change. And we don't know if it was the liquor merchant Murray. Patrick Murray, very uh, Irish. Super liquor Irish merchant. liquor merchant. <laughs> or uh, the Germans, the Frederick no- Frederick Nothaft. Yes. Yep. My suspicion is that it was the Germans who converted this building into a warehouse because they were selling produce, which was very common in this neighborhood at the time. Cold storage was the the main industry that's right so in 1905 we have information about them actually extending the footprint of the building almost to the entire size of the lot but when they did this they actually knocked the second floor off of that tenement in the back right Um, So they kind of kept most of the outside shape of the front building, mm -hmm. knocked out the back wall, or maybe put doors in it. I think they knocked it straight out. They just knocked it all out. And then turned it into a huge warehouse, basically took out the the front and back and right side walls of the tenement building, Mm -hmm. and uh, took it all the way back to the back of the property. Yeah, this was probably when they moved the staircase to the other side of the building. This is when they filled in both basements. Mm Mm-hmm. This is how it stayed until the mid-40s when, as is the way in Philadelphia, they just lopped off the third story because they weren't paying attention to the roof. When they did this, they did leave the third floor and put a roof over top of the floor itself, but it's a crawl space. It's not like a whole story. By 1995, the facade, which sometime in the 60s, just became awful and nasty, like the worst kind of stucco you've ever seen. Uh, a couple of star bolts in there to hold the facade on because it was just in terrible shape. They took that down in the like 90s. Like one of those nailed it birthday cakes. Oh, so <laughs> ugly. In 95, they replaced the facade with, uh, it's actually cinder blocks with bricks in front of it. And that's when we came in. So we've got a whole mishmash. Yeah, it's just a Frankenstein baby of a building. And there's actually two concrete slabs poured on top of each other. Right. So this is probably from like the 1905 renovation. They poured one of those concrete slabs. Yes. And then at some point someone stuck a layer of this weird insulation over that slab and poured a second slab on top so it was extra insulated for the cold storage. Yeah. And then they also dumped a bunch of Alka-Seltzers and whatnot down. Bromo-Seltzers. Bromo-Seltzers <laughs> down under those slabs when they were pouring them. One of the reasons that we know that the bricks on at least one of the walls go back to those two original buildings is that in the tenement 
building area, you can actually see the outline of what was a fireplace and chimney that would have been the heating and cooking area for that tenement building. There's a line in the bricks where that building would have ended. So a vertical line where you can see sort of new bricks on one side and older bricks on another side. And then in the middle of that lot of bricks, there's this kind of uh, broken up area Mm -hmm. that is in the shape of a fireplace and chimney. So that kind of tells you that these are the original bricks from that tenement building. You can also see a couple of courses of bricks that have been darkened because they sat in between these nasty, dirty floors. Oh, yeah, um, right. So you can see where the second floor actually started. And it's just really neat. What is not neat is that when they built the new walls, they didn't do it correctly. They didn't tooth the bricks into each other. Right. Little masonry lesson for you. If you're adding to an existing brick wall that has a flat edge, you don't just butt a flat edge up <laughs> against it. You don't just kind of glue them together. What do they know? They're all drunk Irish German dudes. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have codes. Whatever. You do that, and then a couple decades down the line, somebody else is going to come around and going to have to build a freaking steel cage around the right. whole building to, great to hold it together. and have a crane. So anyway. Tooth your bricks. Tooth your bricks. <laughs> next question. The next question actually comes from Facebook. Uh, Bob Bruin reached out. He says, I have to admit, I've kind of missed any references to the town of Callowhill you may have made during the podcast. Yes, you've missed them because we haven't talked about them. I know the town has been legally moribund since the Act of Consolidation of 1854. That was the same act, I believe, that made the uh, street numbers. That's correct. We went from 21 Callowhill to 103. And mostly physically eradicated by the construction of I-95 in the 60s. Nonetheless, your theater is one of the remaining structures in what was once the original Callow Hill, first named after Hannah. The street in turn takes its name from the town and the Callow Hill district blocks west of you, then stole the name back from the street, making everyone confused about where all of this started. Maybe your neighborhood should be renamed something like Old Callow Hill or Callow Hill Town. What do you think of that? I have to admit, when we got this, I was a little bit puzzled because I hadn't mentioned it. We hadn't mentioned it because I hadn't seen any mention of Callow Hill as a town, even in the Annals of Philadelphia, which is sort of the old document about what Philadelphia was. Yeah, and Bob is right. In modern day Philadelphia, a district has been called Callow Hill that is uh, where the Reading Viaduct Park is being built. I think I talked about this a bunch of weeks ago when I mentioned the Mural Arts Unsung Project. That's what is called now the Callow Hill District. Now, with the detail that Bob mentioned here, I, I went hunting and I found a pretty great article on ushistory.org from the Evening Bulletin back in 1925 that goes into some detail about the history of the town of Callow Hill. It was built really around this market that was incorporated and failed immediately. This was at New Market Street and Callow Hill Street, which at the time, I think, was originally just called New Street. Um, There's not a lot of documentation that I found, mostly searching online, admittedly, about this. But I would love to share a link to this rather than read it out loud. This was definitely a little town, like a suburb outside of Philadelphia, the first Northern Liberty. 
but Philadelphia grew so quickly, mm-hmm. it kind of got absorbed into the greater Northern Liberties. Again, that market failed. There were some interesting rules where you weren't allowed to sell certain products within a radius of the market. They were trying to enforce the, huh. the use of these markets here. And didn't it work. didn't work. They There was a much more successful market a few blocks up Callow Hill Street, actually. And of course, on Market Street, which was then High Street and uh, down at the docks at Dock Creek. So anybody who is listening to this at any point in the future who has more information about this town of Callow Hill beyond this 1925 Evening Bulletin article, I would love to hear more about that because it happened so quickly that it was practically erased from history Hmm. as a town. And I'm not sure about calling it the Callow Hill neighborhood now because I feel like it would get really confusing with the other Callow Hill district that's been designated at around about, what, like 10th and Callow Hill? It's like where H.H. Holmes buried Benjamin Petzl. This is is how I remember it. (laughs) But, I mean, for now, stay tuned. We're just kind of at the junction of northern liberties and old city and the delaware waterfront and i kind of like that we're just in the middle of these three regions yeah it's a neat little sliver of a neighborhood as i tell people as much as it pains me that i-95 did such damage uh, across our city boy if it weren't for that we wouldn't be here right Uh, we would never have been able to afford this plot of ground. Right. A lot of the wonderful people that we've met in the neighborhood wouldn't have been able to buy in the 70s because it was just like not in a good place. <laughs> also, semi-related, if you're familiar with Dietz and Watson, the meat company that is all over doing deli meats and stuff. They make Dietz nuts. That's true. They, they do have that Dietz nuts ad out now. <laughs> um, they were founded here in this neighborhood. Dietz meat nuts. Hello, Matt and Melissa. It's your good friend, Mark Robinson. I thought I would send you a question for your Q&A episode coming up here this weekend, which is, are you guys going to dig the second privy in your house? Because now you've dug a second privy outside of your house, but you don't say anything about if or when you might be digging the second privy in your own house. And if you're not, why the heck not? We all want to see what's in there as well. Thanks. Love the show. That's a really good question, Mark. And you are going to have to stay tuned to future episodes to learn more. (laughs) Uh, Spoiler, we may have started. Um, And then realized it was too big a job for the two of us. And there are some logistical issues with digging this privy. As it turns out, digging a privy creates a lot of dirt. Like the dirt that's in the privy is compacted. And when you pull it out of the privy, the total volume looks bigger. (laughs) It's madness. It's it's really madness. Another thing is that this privy is way deeper than the first privy. Yeah, yeah, we we found some stuff. We did do a little bit of excavation, but we're going to have to take more care to do that properly to get to the bottom of this one. And we're pulling in reinforcements in the form of Michael and Tom, who very generously offered to uh, give us advice and muscles over this summer. So stay tuned 
Yeah, I guess that's like season two of the bog house. We're not doing seasons. This no, is all just going to be season. one crazy long season. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yes, the story is ongoing. Do not fear. We have not forgotten the second privy. It fucking keeps me up at night sometimes. So we got a really simple follow-up uh, along the same lines from our friend Peter Christian. I actually don't know if he sent this in as a question and answer or if he just wanted to know for his own personal use. But I'm treating this as a question and answer uh, question because... Everybody asks it. We get asked this question all the time. When will the theater be finished? Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we have a bunch of steps to go through before we can do the theatre. The first step, of course, is all of this archaeology that we have to do. We have to do that first, just as in the giant development down the road. Archaeology comes first. And then the first stage of building the theatre is going to be a huge hurdle for us because it's a big, expensive stage where a bunch of stuff has to be done at once. We mentioned that there's this horrible concrete slab foundation in there right now it's actually two concrete slabs with a (laughs) layer of cancerous insulation in between all of that has to be broken up and taken away concrete disposal is really expensive because concrete is really heavy so we're gonna need thousands of dollars to do that and then we need to plan out all of the plumbing particularly the DWV part of the plumbing the drainage of the plumbing so that we can lay that all in the ground And then we have to plan out the in-floor heating that I want in the theater because it's silent and it's the most efficient way to heat a space like this. And we have to lay that out. And then we have to pay thousands of dollars to have a brand new concrete slab poured that uh, covers the whole floor space of this building. So all of that is a ton of money that we don't quite yet have, but we're hoping that we're going to be able to borrow it later this year. Or if any listener knows anybody, the William Penn Foundation. (laughs) (laughs) They seem to do really cool stuff with their money, and we would love to take some foundation money. I've never written a grant in my life. Literal foundation money. We need a foundation to fund our foundation. Sorry, I had to say it. Um, (laughs) We're, We're still figuring out funding yeah but i mean uh if we can get this step out of the way the rest of the theater is going to be pretty easy because it's basically all just you know framing and electrical and you know this is all stuff that i can deal with simple i can deal with that stuff in my head yeah but pouring an entire concrete slab that is not something that i can do by myself or without the help of very seasoned professionals so uh anyway your question was when will the theater be finished my absolute best case scenario for a maybe not finished but possible to do something in it Mm -hmm. space would be fringe festival 2020 which is september of 2020 next year and that's an absolute best case scenario do not hold me to that but right now in my head if i can get the funding to do this first floor thing you know i can open a sort of a proto space Mm -hmm. at that point right but we'll see stay tuned (laughs) this is going to become a podcast about running a theater. <laughs> uh, so what's next? 
Next, we have a comment slash question, uh, which brings up a really cool issue from Jamie Grace Duff on Facebook. She says, I am a costumer slash technician in the area, and one of my many jobs is sewing uniforms for a Revolutionary War reenactment regiment, the 43rd Regiment of Foot. My goal as the tailor is to recreate the work as accurately as possible using all the research folks have been gathering for decades. So imagine now that these clothes are discovered by future archaeologists and scientists, etc. So how confusing would it be? Here in the midst of the 2000s, we have examples of garments made just like garments from the 1700s. But meanwhile, we also have these examples of mass manufactured clothing. I can only imagine the confusion. So that's why archaeology is important. When we spoke with Debbie Miller a few episodes ago, I think she talked about how archaeology is more than just finding stuff and cleaning it and reassembling it. It's looking at that stuff in the context of its environment where you found it. And that helps inform what you know about what it is you've dug out. Yeah, and I feel like you can go through history and actually see a lot of this interesting anachronistic stuff. So something that just occurred to me, for instance, is fakes from the medieval period of relics from Christ's time. Right. Right. Of course. So the Shroud of Turin, for example, or like a bunch of different things that people were like, no, 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 this is really from... This is wood from Jesus's cross. This is wood from Jesus's cross, right? This is his crown of thorns. (laughs) And, uh, you know, this effort to sort of make things that are from a different period. And then you and I were sort of talking about this question of during the Renaissance, mm-hmm. um, the fetishization almost of things from ancient Greece and Rome leading to people trying to make statues in that style and houses and architecture in this style. But interestingly enough, of course, You can historically inform stuff, but it probably won't be an exact replica of stuff from the time, right? Right. Folks who make replicas of redware that is of the style that we have up in our cabinets from being in the privy aren't glazing it with lead. Right. Because (laughs) they don't want to die of nervous disorders or their children to be dumb and violent. And if you're making hats, you're probably not using mercury. Probably not. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Hope not. So there are a a number of different things. That being said, yeah, reenactments and the industry around them certainly would make something like this weird. I think another point here that is kind of interesting, uh, when we spoke with, I think, Jed Levin, he lamented garbage collection and the Mm. fact that we recycle actually erases history in a way that having these privies doesn't right yeah archaeologists against recycling no that's not true but i understand you know it's different now the way we operate is very different to how it was back then so things aren't going to be preserved in the same way i mean i'm sure there are people who would lament you know paper as opposed to clay tablets and then computer records as opposed to paper Mm -hmm. it's like we're living this more and more ephemeral lifestyle 
That being said, that does not preclude us from saving each glass and plate that we've broken since discovering the privy, because maybe we might put them at the bottom of our privy before we fill it back in. We're totally going to do that. (laughs) And I want to get an engraver so that we can engrave stuff into the pottery, because the thing that excites me the most when I pull something out of the ground Mm -hmm. are words and pictures. So I'm making pictograms on our IKEA plates. And I'm going to put them in the privy before we cover it back up. And I hope, much like the miniature of Enyan Williams that we were able to discover, that maybe somebody is listening to this podcast like <laughs> 200 years in the future. And it's like those motherfuckers. <laughs> I, I have those Ikea plates they were using. So next up, we have uh, a question from an old friend of ours, Jill Aldridge. She writes, hi, Matt and Mel. I have a few questions for you Q&A. Are there major health concerns with mucking around in a privy? Specifically, should I be concerned that you will unearth an ancient alien bacteria straight out of the (laughs) X-Files? Short answer is probably not. The environment inside a privy is generally anaerobic, which means there's no air, literally, that's what it translates to. Mm -hmm. But bacteria and viruses tend not to survive down there. Right. It's not particularly smelling i mean when you get down to the black philadelphia cream cheese there's a bit of a whiff of something there (laughs) but it's not like a bacterial smell no like (laughs) and you'll also find layers of ash and lime that was sort of an early i don't want to call it disinfectant but it's an approach to neutralizing some of the nastiness that was in there a hundred or two hundred years ago right and also a thing to remember is that This is such a small timescale of archaeology that Mm -hmm. we're doing right now. Like 100, 200 years ago is nothing. I don't think that, you know, really ancient bacteria that we don't know how to deal with is going to be down there. You know what I mean? In my head, that's like more of an Antarctica deal. Like we'd be more worried about Antarctic ice thawing out and releasing something that's been in stasis for a really long time in the cold. Yeah. Good thing global warming's not real. Yeah, good thing. Good thing it's a hoax, a Chinese hoax, right? One thing I do want to mention, though, is that my microbiologist friend, Jason Diaz, has asked me to collect soil samples from down in the privy for his students at LaSalle to analyze for bacteriophages to see if they can find any bacteriophages that might have lived... Perpetuated through the centuries. (laughs) 200 years ago, but haven't been recorded by modern science. It's a very slim chance, but I also really love that I have these nerdy science friends who are interested in this kind of thing. Anyway, Jason has not said anything about me being in danger, so I'm just going to trust him (laughs) on that question. Uh, Jill had a second question. Is or can there be an extended version of the Boghouse theme song? (gasps) Funny you should ask that, Jill. Actually, you hear a little bit of an extended version at the end of every episode, but you never really hear it finished because we are somewhat good at zipping our lips. Um, <laughs> we, we, we know how to wrap things up. Sort of. That being said, we have recorded a number of songs during the course of the making of this podcast. And since you brought it up, Jill, we have made those available now on the Up Your Cherry Bandcamp page. You can get both the full-length Boghouse theme and the shortened edit that you hear at the beginning of every episode. 
There is an extended version of the theme that we actually used in the episode 15 intermission, which is super spacey and just sort of variation on a theme. And you also get a copy of some of the music we used in the Antoine Probst episode. So you can go to upyourcherry, all one word, dot bandcamp.com and download the album there. And Matt actually has, uh, for the Uber fans... <laughs> this relates a little bit to an upcoming question, but I'll spoil it a little bit. We have talked about how we don't advertise and we don't really use this to raise money, but people have approached us asking, how can we support you? We appreciate what you do. And I understand that because I'm the same way. When I'm looking at something I enjoy from an artist, from whomever who's, who's doing this of their own goodwill, I do like the opportunity to support folks. So I made a couple of options here on the Bandcamp page. The digital download, uh, it's $5, but you can pay what you will. There is also a deluxe physical edition, which of course comes from the world of music that I get into where you, you have these wacky things. Um, there are going to be 15 physical CDs burned of these tracks and they're going to have handmade covers and when you purchase those the price for that again it's pay what you will starting at $75 you also get copies of Tesla's Pigeon Melissa's Song Cycle both the piano vocal and orchestral versions and an album Go Song of Mine by the Simon Carrington Chamber Singers which includes the debut of What Do You Think I Fought For at Omaha Beach States back to 2011. Yeah, those are two Digipack CDs that I have kicking around, which I would love to sell to you. So, <laughs> so if you're feeling extra supporty, we're going to give you something extra special. There may or may not be more to it than that, but you can always stream for free. Chris Clements had a question on Facebook. He wants more details about the Bog House theme, specifically what gear we used. Well, I used a violin that I bought on eBay from China, Chris Clements, but I don't <laughs> think that that's actually what you were asking me. So I'll hand you over to Matt. Yes. When we were talking about making a theme, I asked Melissa what direction she wanted to go in. And the two guidelines that I got were Unsolved Mysteries... And, of course, Stranger Things. Yeah, and a little bit the X-Files theme. Yes. <laughs> uh, all of this said to me, analog synthesizers, which I happen to have a few. Some of them are, you know, recreations, but that doesn't matter. They're really good. The gear used on the Boghouse theme is a Moog Sub-37 monophonic, uh, paraphonic synthesizer. It's my second favorite of everything that I have. It's incredible. I love the sound design capabilities on it. He met Bob Moog one time. At a Nine Inch Nails concert. Uh, we were uh, buddies next to each other in the same row. It was kind of great. Um, <laughs> next to that, doing the beats was my Dave Smith Instruments Tempest analog drum machine. As with all of these, I've designed the sounds myself. That's you know a weird thing I do in my spare time. So I did the beats on the Tempest. We also used a couple of these Roland Boutique virtual analog ACB, whatever, uh, synthesizers. A Roland JP08, which is an emulation of a Jupiter 8. A Jupiter 8, if you tried to buy it now, would cost you five or $6,000. I got this in a trade for about $300 worth of gear. And it's 
just sounds lovely. We ran it through a Hall of Fame reverb pedal by TC Electronic. First generation, nothing, nothing fancy there. Also used an SH-01A, which is a cute little synthesizer. You can see the daddy version of that, the original 1980s keyboard in the Flock of Seagulls video for Iran. It just makes wonderful sounds. Uh, I think that is the extent of what we used, aside from, of course, the violin. Uh, we multi-tracked it a bit. And in the super slow extended version on that EP that you can download now, that is just the JP-08 and SH-01A, although they switched roles. I have the melody playing on the SH-01A, and uh, the, the pads are playing on the JP-08. This is stuff that I have only the most passing interest in. I just write the notes. Yeah, whatever, you're going to go and beat up some nerds now? <laughs> no, 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 I'm not saying that it's bad. I'm just saying it's really good that our skills and interests dovetail in this way because, yeah. like, no one would ask me what gear I'm using if it were me because I'd be like, oh, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, I, I really primarily focused on creating the sounds, but before that I was like, Melissa, just play something... Right. On your Yamaha piano, right? Riff something out, and then we'll figure out what it, what it's gonna sound good. And she, you know, with. was playing a few things, and then I sort of locked onto something. I was like, "Keep playing that," and I actually ran to the other side of the house, plugged in the Moog, and just played the bass line along with it. And like, all right, let's go with That's that. That's it. The next question is from Jennifer. She begins with, First, let me say, I would never have thought that I would be so interested in privy diggers, but life is full of odd personal discoveries. <laughs> Fact. <laughs> Isn't it just? I listen to your podcast while I sew and make patterns at work. We have a lot of seamstress and tailor listeners, which I kind of love because my mother was a seamstress and Larry's dad was a tailor mm -hmm. seamster. <laughs> And I think so, a tailor worked here in the 1700s. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Anyway, um, where was I? Uh, it makes the day go faster. And I feel like if you all lived in L.A., we would travel in the same social circle and be friends. Probably. But we also probably wouldn't dig privies because <laughs> the only thing you dig for in L.A. are Ice Age creatures in the La Brea top heads. Well, and the oil that surrounds them. And oil. Okay. Um, my question is not about the podcast per se, but I'm interested to know how you met one another. What is the Melissa and Matt origin story? Somebody told you to ask that, didn't they? <laughs> it wasn't us. <laughs> like, that's so... Okay. So, all right. Here we go. Yeah, this could be a podcast in itself, but... Yeah. We'll try and, I guess... We, we can sum it up party style. I guess. Yeah. Okay. So take yourself back to where do we start it? Do we start it with, with the Nine Inch Nails hotline? I could go even beyond that. Okay. Um, in 1995, I made a website about Nine Inch Nails. Uh, it was actually a way to put my terrible remixes of Nine Inch Nails online and get them out to other people. And you would have been 15, 16. 15, 16 years old. This actually got me a job interview with Nine Inch Nails in 1999. <laughs> that did not turn into a full-time job. Uh, so instead, I ended up doing this fan website, the Nin Hotline. I did not name it. Somebody else did. I just ran with it because it was a staffed page. I had volunteers helping me out. 
this went on for about a year before I ended up getting an email from an up and coming VJ in <laughs> Australia. Okay, so I was dating a guy who was super into Nine Inch Nails, and uh, and I listened to Nine Inch Nails, and I thought it was pretty cool. I remember listening to the Downward Spiral all in one go once when I was drunk and thinking, like, wow, I really want to shoot myself in the head. That's pretty powerful stuff. And then in early 2000, January 2000, Nine Inch Nails came to the big day out in Australia, and I saw them live and had like a spiritual experience in the pit and (laughs) was totally blown away by that set and by their album that had just come out, The Fragile, or The Fragile, as I would have said in my Australian accent. And I became this Nine Inch Nails uber fan. That boyfriend and I broke up and I carried the Nine Inch Nails fandom far further than he ever did, I think. (laughs) And became completely obsessed. So later that year, in August or so, Channel V, which is the Australian equivalent of MTV, or it was at the time, it's defunct now, was holding this nationwide cattle call, who wants to be a VJ competition. And I had just broken up with this boyfriend and I was depressed in my house unshowered and sad and mopey and decided I really needed some kind of distraction to get me out of the house. And these auditions were happening just kind of down the road from my house in Sydney at Fox Studios. So I said, ah, fuck it. I'll get out of bed and I'll have a shower and I'll take my viola because why not? And I'll head on down to Fox Studios and do this audition. I came completely unprepared. I didn't know what I was doing. They asked me to say some words about myself They asked me for a bio, which I wrote in pencil on notepad paper because I didn't have one with me. Uh, I picked up my viola and I scrubbed it violently in a weird cover of an Atari Teenage Riot track because I was pretty into Atari Teenage Riot at the time too. Revolution action. So I basically like scratched on my viola really violently and screamed revolution action for like 30 seconds. And that was my audition. And I left and I felt pretty good. Because I didn't give a shit. And I was like, okay, that was fun. I no distracted myself. Yeah. yeah, I just distracted myself. That's good. I got out of bed. No depression today. Thank you. And then I was super shocked a few weeks later when they called me up and said, congratulations, you're a finalist. Now you're going to be on TV for two weeks. We're going to give you all of these tasks to do, like interview a perfect circle and... Uh, cover a Moby concert, you're gross. And also one of the things that they asked me to do was review my favorite music-related website for the Channel V website. Good thing for me, I make music-related websites. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite music-related website was the Nin Hotline because it was the best Nine Inch Nails news website around. It was far more informative than the official Nine Inch Nails website, which was kind of an art fuck project. It was a different kind of internet back then. Yeah. 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 I just wanted news and information and that's where I got it. You also had a bunch of different people contributing things like a humor column, yeah. which was very funny, the meathead perspective. So I wrote this review up and then I sent the guy who ran the website an email saying, yo, I just put your website on the Channel V website. And I was like, hey, I'll tell everybody to vote for you because I clicked through to your profile and saw the video of you playing Revolution Action on a viola. (laughs) I remember working at the York Newspaper Company and doing this. 
And I was like, this is awesome. This is great. <laughs> uh, and then things went quiet for a little bit. Yeah. A few months later, I found your, what was it, mp3.com uh, yes. profile. Uh, I may have been stalking you slightly. I don't know. And I heard some music that you had made on Tracker Software. Slightly less crappy than my remixes. It was good. It, it actually... I was very proud of this at the time. I charted on the industrial charts on mp3.com. Yes. Higher than Sister Machine Gun. <laughs> um, and I made some money off that, and I even was able to buy stock in mp3.com. I didn't make that much money because I, it, it, it was a weird time. Um, <laughs> nonetheless. Anyway, I found this music, and I was like, wow, this is cool. And I had been looking for a Christmas present for my flatmate and best friend Lucy. So I said, well, why don't I burn a CD of this stuff for her? I think she'd like it. So I sent you a message on ICQ. That's right. Dot com. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Asking if it was cool to burn a copy for your flatmate. Yeah. I was like, yeah, of course. That's You could download from mp3.com for free. It was just purchasing a CD cost money, and I don't think they shipped to Australia. Right. So then we started talking on ICQ, which for those of you who have no idea, was just a chat program. It still technically exists, but mm -hmm. I think it's only really popular in like Brazil. Right. We, we chatted. I, again, was still working at this newspaper company that had no idea what to do with me. I was in the internet department and they were still laying pages out with X-Acto knives across the half wall from me. Um, so I spent uh, all my time working on my Nine Inch Nails website and talking to Melissa Dunphy. Yeah. And Sorry. I had... <laughs> and talking to Melissa Shong. Oh, that's right. Yes. I, <laughs> I didn't have your last name back then, <laughs> funnily enough. And then I kept really weird hours because I was an office goth at the time. So I did a lot of like nothing um, <laughs> at night except for talking to this one guy on the other side of the world. And we dated other people and it wasn't romantic at all. Like right. We weren't chatting each other up. We were just having conversations. Yeah, about I'm talking to an Australian. That, yeah. that is so normal now. Yeah. Like it's not unusual now to talk to anybody from anywhere except maybe Iran. It's hard to talk to Iranians. <laughs> Uh, in America, anyway. Sure. Uh, except for expats. Nonetheless, <laughs> um, uh, the, it was just cool. We're talking about what we do day to day. Yeah, and, and we had a lot in common, and we got on really well. Mm -hmm. So skip to two years and approximately 500 pages of chat logs <laughs> later. I had been planning on coming on a vacation to the United States ever since I was 14, and went to space camp with a school group who then did a whirlwind tour of America. And I was very unhappy with all of the places that these schoolgirls I went with wanted to go. Like they wanted to go shopping for shoes at Payless Shoes in New York City. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? We're in the most incredible city in the world and you want to go to fucking Payless to buy chucks? Like, get the fuck out. I'm going to come to America by myself and do whatever the fuck I want to do. So when I was 21, about to turn 22, I realized it was within my means to go to America on a vacation by myself. Because in Australia, you get four weeks paid leave every year if you work full time, which I did. She mentioned to me that she was going to visit New York and New Orleans, and I had been going to New Orleans annually for a couple of years since that first job interview. 
I suggested, since I had a brand new 2001 Hyundai Elantra, that maybe we do a road trip and you see what's in between. I was so happy that he said that because I didn't want to drive in America and I didn't know my way around anything. And I was kind of hoping that he would suggest that I at least come and visit him and say hi because I've been talking to this guy online for a couple of years and he seems really cool. Yeah, and a little bit of context. I had, at this point, hit a bunch of Nine Inch Nails shows. There are pictures of me online. There's video of me like hanging out with uh, internet friends at these shows. So I'm not a complete unknown, uh, just a mostly unknown. Um, and, uh, and you'd seen video of me playing yeah. viola and screaming revolution action at the top of my lungs. So, you know, I'm a real person. So where we actually met was in the parking lot of a Greyhound station in York, Pennsylvania. That's right. We met in a bus depot. <laughs> <laughs> and then I dragged Melissa. It wasn't really dragging. She came with me to an all-night uh, LAN party mm-hmm. where me and uh, my fellow nerdy friends... Who now have their own podcast. Which is wildly successful. It's called the Secret Cabal Gaming Podcast. Uh, we were all playing uh, like Warcraft and uh, what was it? Counter-Strike. Counter-Strike. Yeah. And that sort of thing. We were staying up all night because the next day we were going to the greater Baltimore area Hamburie and Computer Fest. Which was so exciting to me because, <laughs> I mean, I was the nerd. I was working in IT, uh, in a B2B division of IT at General Electric at the time. So, you know, it was like up my alley. I mean, there's nerd and then there's ham radio yeah. nerd. I mean, it was a little weird. One of my favorite things from that uh, computer fair was uh, a parking lot that was full of weird nerd dudes who had backed their trucks up and had stuff that they were there to sell in the parking lot. And as I was walking through this area, I noticed a little like card table set up and a guy had a three-rotor Enigma machine, like from World War II, a German Enigma machine. I had just finished reading uh, Cryptonomicon by Neil Stevenson, so I felt like I knew a lot about Enigma machines at this point. I ran up to him and I started babbling about how cool it was. I couldn't believe that there's an Enigma machine in the parking lot of a, of a Baltimore fairgrounds. Like, what is going on? And he got, like, really weird and squirrely, like he didn't really want to talk to me, which I thought was kind of weird. And then as we walked away, Matt informs me... Well, that's a funny thing. I was living uh, basically on the Mason-Dixon line, which for those of you who are not local to Pennsylvania might not know that's the border between uh, the North and the South in Civil War terms. And what Melissa didn't notice is this gentleman, uh, if I could use that term, had a lot of German memorabilia. (laughs) But why? Why would he have so much German memorabilia, Matthew? Melissa asks (laughs) in her complete naivety. Because he's a Nazi. (laughs) No! (laughs) The reason he was weirded out was he was talking to somebody who didn't look quite white enough. (laughs) Welcome to America! I'm like totally just... I love history! Tell me about your (laughs) historical thing! with this historical artifact and he's like I love Hitler (laughs) there are a lot of people who've been surprised about the recent uh, changes in public whatever those people didn't grow up in York County 
They didn't grow up around the stuff that I've seen. Uh, it doesn't surprise me. It just disappoints me that it's had this resurgence. Yeah. Nonetheless. Anyway, we're totally off track. We end up road tripping down to New Orleans and back. And uh, New Orleans, I mean, there were some signs along the way that something was afoot. There was some weird emotional stuff happening that both of us were so nerdy about and in denial about that we were just holding off as oh, best as we could. On the drive down, we both talked about, I, I talked about how long distance relationships are the worst. I had broken up with my girlfriend from Baltimore because the 45 minute drive was just, oh, it's terrible. I'm never doing long distance again. Oh yeah, no, I would never do it in the first place. Like what a stupid idea. Why can't you just find someone close to you who lives near you? Like I don't understand why anyone would do that. It never works. Of course, all of this all of this that's going on from the computer show, really from the moment Melissa stepped off the bus, in my head, I'm like, whoa, don't be weird. Wow. <laughs> She's, wow. Okay, we're just friends. Don't don't be a weirdo. And I was like, oh, wow, he's really attractive, but I'm just going to rein it in really hard. But also I'm going to like see if I can spot any of the telltale signs of attraction in him. Because I don't want to like just assume that he's attracted to me because what a fucking egotistical assumption. So uh, I had read this article, I don't know, in like Life magazine or something at a doctor's office, which talk about like how to tell when someone is attracted to you. And I'd, I'd remembered reading this thing about like, if you're sitting next to someone and their legs are crossed towards you, then that's a sign that they're like attracted to you. Or if their feet are like pointed in your direction, even when they're talking to someone else, then they're really more attracted to you. So I was watching Matt's legs and feet with this eagle eye to like divine if there was anything going on or you know if my attraction was misplaced and I should just put a lid on it and I was like oh he seems to be just crossing his legs half the time toward me and half the time away from me so you know what Melissa like it's not happening it's not happening also I had this whole code system set up with my friend Lucy where we would talk on the phone and use code words to say because Lucy was convinced that something was going to happen between us and I was like fuck off Lucy that's not going to happen we're just friends we're just friends on the internet it's not weird because nobody falls in love over the internet it's 2002 so I was like no, Lucy, the chips are not hot. They're not even hot. Nothing's happening. Well, New Orleans really put on a show for us. Yeah. Uh, we end up getting down there, and it's the French Quarter Festival. So while there's always music going on, this is uh, above and beyond. It was like the whole city was laying out the romantic red carpet for us everywhere we went. Black cats would cross our path and come running up to us and smoosh their faces against our shins. And uh, we would, like, wish for something and it would just come true. Like Matt said, well, what, do you, what would you like to see when you're in New Orleans? And I was being totally facetious and I said, I would love to see like a marching band just march by like one of those New Orleans style funerals or something like a, I've never seen a marching band just walk by in the street and Matt's like yeah I, I, I can't do that <laughs> And then one day we're just having uh, lunch and sitting on a wall just outside of the French Quarter and suddenly this noise starts up and we look at a high school marching band, sousaphones and all, just cranks right up and walks 
by us, right by us, like they're putting on a show just for us. <laughs> yeah, right down to the point where the last day that we were in New Orleans, we uh, went to the House of Blues to go see a show. And we got there pretty early, so we sat right next to the VIP section because, you know, that's the good seats. And who sits in front of us but Trent Reznor uh, <laughs> and the rest of the crew from Nine Inch Nails because they live in New Orleans. Uh, and it's like that dude right there in front of me, in front of us, is the reason we're even hanging out. So like, weird. What's going on? So I weird. didn't get a chance to introduce Melissa for like another four years. Yeah. Um, but we got that. We got there. Uh, so <laughs> my absolute favorite part of this story <laughs> is that after we caved and finally admitted to each other that there was something going on, I was telling you about how I had read in this Life magazine story that body language will give away people's attraction and you can totally tell if someone has a crush on you by which way their legs are crossed. And, uh, and I explained that, you know, I had looked at his legs and it didn't seem like he was attracted to me and so I was adjusting my behavior so it didn't seem like I was attracted to him. And then you fucking tell me. I had read the same study but in Discover magazine. And I was very deliberately not giving off any signals. I, I made a concerted effort not to cross my legs more than 50% in one direction or the other, etc., etc. Like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> oh my god, we are so fucking disgustingly cute. <laughs> so... Anyway, we, we fell in love in New Orleans. Yeah, and on the way back to Pennsylvania in Matt's Hyundai Elantra, we're like, oh, fuck, what do we do? Like, what are our options? What do we do? Um, we're in fucking love. This is fuck, fuck, what do we do? So it was like, do we just run away in a loop now? And I, when I worked at the York Daily Record, had followed this story about Chinese refugees who were being put up in the York Federal Prison. It was a scandal because the prison gets extra money to put refugees in there because they're supposed to be taking better care of them. They were essentially treating them like prisoners and pocketing the money. Basically, what it came down to is don't mess with immigration. Like, yeah. don't, don't joke around with Plus, this was post 9-11 and the Department of Homeland Security was just about to be created. It was a little baby. It, yeah, yeah, it was, everything was like super fucked up in terms of immigration. It's like, we better not mess with that. So tearfully, I agree to go back to Australia. Almost Mr. Plane. <laughs> That's right. Very late night. And I, I said, I decided, okay, listen, I'm the only person who's actually expended a lot of financial effort in right. this engagement so far. It wasn't really an engagement yet. So here's the deal. If you come to Australia and meet my batshit family and <laughs> spend some time seeing where I come from, then I would be willing to come to America and live with you and we'll figure out the best way of doing the immigration thing. Yeah, so I went back to school. I had uh, dropped out of my associate's degree program because I was learning COBOL at Penn State York while the internet was happening. But getting most of your degree is really stupid when you could just finish up and get all of it. I saved up my York County money for a round trip to Australia. This all took about eight months. Yeah, and... It 
during those eight months, we were both researching like mad how to immigrate to America if you're an Australian with not particularly unique skills. (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) (laughs) And about six months into it, By this time, I had switched jobs. I was now working at a TV station in closed captioning. And uh, this actually gave me a lot of time, downtime, to chat to Matt on ICQ in between news broadcasts. So I would do a lot of that. So I'm chatting with him one day and Matt brings something up. Well, I had been talking to my friends and trying to come up with a way for us to just like, how can we live together? And there are a very few options available, one of which involves a ring. The thing was, I wasn't going to propose to Melissa over the phone or over email, but... Or ICQ. Oh, certainly not ICQ. <laughs> um, but you also don't just spring that on someone while you're in town. There's a lot of planning involved. So I sent a message saying, um, I think i know how that we can solve this um i think it requires filling out some forms with the government and i instantly knew what he was saying and this is so weird because i've never been a big believer in the institution of marriage you know my parents marriage was like seven different kinds of messed up and uh i was never one of those girls who would sit down doodling my wedding dress when i was in high school or anything like that But I instantly knew what he was asking me, and there was this huge swell of emotions. And uh, I stood up at my desk, and I burst into tears, and I ran into the bathroom, and my girlfriends at work came running after me and like, what's wrong? What's wrong? What was happening? And I was like, my boyfriend just asked me to marry him, but not really. (laughs) Not really, but he mentioned filling out some forms, and this means marriage but he's not actually asking me that because it's super non-romantic but i'm just this is the first oh my god and you know and then they were like well what are you gonna say what are you gonna say and so i went back to my desk and i said i love you so much i'll even marry you if that's what i have to do (laughs) (laughs) and um yeah to to sort of fast forward here i did eventually get down there uh there was a a funny story where I told her that I would be there for Christmas Eve. I was not accounting for the international dateline. So (laughs) she had one of those, Oh, my American boyfriend, he really exists. He'll, he'll be here. I promise. Uh, He thought he was coming today. Like, isn't your boyfriend supposed to be here today? Uh, He's coming tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Good one, Matt. Good one. Um, And he proposed on New Year's Eve. Yeah. uh, Spent a month in Australia. We did touristy things because you don't really do touristy things in your own backyard. Right. But then I had to return to the States. We had a five-month wait where they literally just let the application sit in an outbox. This is with the K-1 fiancé visa, Mm -hmm. the super creepy 90-day fiancé mail-order bride visa. Yeah, they make reality shows about it now. Mm -hmm. And uh, Melissa does make it over here uh we have 90 days to get married most people you know they go to the courthouse and they do it that way and then plan a wedding but because of the change in immigration melissa couldn't get a job there was no like work permit that traditionally you would get immediately upon entering under a fiance visa and if you haven't figured this out about melissa or didn't already know she does not sit idle 
so instead of waiting around, we just planned a wedding in 90 days. Planned and performed a wedding in 90 days. <laughs> uh, so we had been in each other's company for certainly less than half a year before we got married. Yeah, I think, well, when you proposed, we had spent in person less than six weeks in each other's company. And everyone was like, oh, you're nuts. This is crazy. This is such a crazy thing. And (laughs) I was like, I mean, yes, true. But also I realized that if I didn't take this plunge, I would regret it for the rest of my life. And you know what? If we get married and it doesn't work out, then it doesn't fucking work out. Like, you know, it's not the end of the fucking world. Like, it'll let's just fucking try it. This is the only way to be together. The only way to be together is just get fucking get married. Yeah. And And that was almost 16 years ago. There's the origin story. That's it. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry if that was long. There's even longer versions of it, but it's not appropriate to blabber on quite that much okay next question hey dunfees sean arajo here do you believe aliens have visited earth and if so what do you think the chances are that you found one of their artifacts (laughs) thanks sean uh i might mention sean sent that in og vorbis i think i specifically (laughs) called that out jokingly uh sean sean followed through (laughs) we love it that's awesome okay well i think first of all we have to answer the question do you believe that aliens exist I mean, aliens must exist in some form or another. I'm um, so sure that alien life exists on other planets, but I'm not so sure... That they've visited. That they've made it all the way to Earth, because as we've demonstrated on our own planet, um, intelligence is not necessarily a factor in the longevity of a species. Sure. We've been on the planet for a million years, less than a million years, and we've totally fucked up the planet (laughs) to the point where we're threatening our own survival and the survival of millions of other species on the planet. Compare that to dinosaurs who were on the planet for 165 million years, 165 million years, and had to be wiped out by an external force or they would have gone on for even longer. And dinosaurs had brains the size of walnuts and were really stupid little lizards, apparently, or, you know, not much smarter than a bird, you know. So I'm kind of like, I wonder if species like ours that get really good at technology tend to burn themselves out. A. B. My personal theory is that the uh, aliens... (laughs) This is a total crackpot theory that I only half believe. <laughs> that the aliens that we talk about visiting Earth, whenever people have these alien experiences with mm-hmm. greys or whatever, I think that it would be far more likely that those are time-traveling humans from the future than they were aliens from a far-off planet. Because what the hell? Why do they have humanoid physiology? It doesn't make any sense for an alien to walk upright on two legs and have our stupid back and head and arm situation unless they evolved from uh, primates like we did. So, you know, my personal theory is that those are time travelers from the future and maybe they're the ones that fucked up this timeline by coming back and screwing with some shit and now Donald Trump is the fucking president. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I don't even know if I would go that far. I think about time travel as being the kind of thing that I I don't see any real need to travel backwards in time 
it's always worse. It's always worse. And I'm I'm sitting on a mountain of privilege. Like I, would, I thought you were about to say, and I'm sitting on a privy, which is literally a portal <laughs> through time to an earlier era. Mm, drugs. <laughs> uh, and as as far as... <laughs> we're getting a little punchy. Oh, almost there. <laughs> keep going, keep going. <laughs> I'm leaving this in. <laughs> as far as aliens out there, I, I like the, the dark forest theory of the universe. The fact that we aren't receiving any alien transmissions uh, is probably related to the reason why everybody gets super quiet in the wild at night because that's when the predators come out and we just by making ourselves a flashing beacon like if there are higher intelligence beings or whatever out there they're just going to come here and wipe us out they're, I mean, they're not going to drop artifacts and, and leave sentient apes what a stupid fucking idea i would wipe us out if i were a higher order species i uh, <laughs> <laughs> Matt hates Melissa it when is I talk so like this. <laughs> she, she <laughs> i'm trying so hard not to kill myself and then melissa's like everything is terrible kill everybody including yourself and like i just no no no, no i'm no. trying to stay positive the best thing you can do is live a good life and try not to impact the environment too much and uh make your little corner of the world a better place and be as kind as you can be good to other people and don't fucking litter okay next <laughs> our final question comes from a fan scott stevenson who emailed us scott in case you don't recognize the name, is the president and CEO of the Museum of the American Revolution. He is a very important fan of VIF. Scott writes, did you renew your membership at the Museum of the American Revolution yet? Thank you for asking that, Scott, but I am so far ahead of you. As soon as I came home from the Museum of the American Revolution function a number of weeks ago, I went to my computer and I went to mrevmuseum.org and I bought Matt and me dual membership to the museum so that we can go to the museum whenever we want free of charge and we have access to a bunch of their special events for free and we have a guest pass that we can use and we get 10% off at the gift shop. It's an amazing deal and I'm so happy to be finally in the membership. Oh, there's a newsletter also that comes out every month and tells you everything there is to know about all of the upcoming events at the museum. How am I doing? Am I doing good? Uh, we have not been sponsored. This is Melissa's actual excitement here and this <laughs> This is something that we do. We we feel it's important to give what we can to institutions that we respect, whether it's the Museum of the American Revolution or members of the Philadelphia Art Museum. The um, National Park Service. National we love Park donating Service. to them whenever we have anything spare to donate and visiting the parks and spreading the word. Right. And WITF, Philadelphia's PBS and NPR station. And this ties into, there was a, a follow-up question from uh, Jennifer earlier. Uh, she said, you should consider having a PayPal or a Patreon or whatever podcasters are doing these days for those of us who want to help support you or your theater. This is just in the spirit of that. We want to support things. And if you want to support us, just do that Bandcamp thing. I think it's easy. It's a nice trade. You get some cool stuff in return. You already got a lot of cool stuff. We're at episode 19, I think. Yeah. 
<laughs> um, so more to come. Also, there are Bug House shirts. If you go to bughouse.thehanna.org, uh, there's a link to the shop which has the Frenchman shirt, which <laughs> I still love. It's like my favorite shirt, but I'm trying not to wear it all the time because I'm going to wear it out. Uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, buy shirts, get music, um, support us if you like. Or just keep listening and keep spreading the word. We love our listeners. Thank you so much for listening and for following us on this journey and staying with us and uh, telling us how much you like the show. And please remember to rate and review and subscribe on all of the platforms and tell your friends. The best thing about this is the word of mouth. We keep hearing from people that their friends told them to listen to this podcast. And that's so cool uh, it's super weird <laughs> it's, i mean yes it's weird but it's cool weird i mean it's our, cool weird our whole I, life is super weird yeah that's actually that's a fact <laughs> all right so we'll talk to you guys in a july month july or so yeah. yeah but stay tuned on social media like we said and keep in touch. And if you have more questions, you can still email us at boghouse at thehanna.org and we'll answer your questions in a future episode who knows how many weeks down the road. I'm Melissa Dunphy. And I'm Matt Dunphy. And you've been listening to The Bog House. You can find out more about our show at boghouse.thehanna.org. The Bog House is recorded at the Hannah Callahill stage in Philadelphia. Our theme music is by Up Your Cherry. Subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review if you like what you hear.